0: Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. Uh, Good to see you. Uh, My name is Drew. If we've not met, I am a pastor here at Redeemer as well. Uh, We are continuing this morning in a series we've just beginning here at the beginning of the summer uh, about crucial spiritual habits that we're going to talk about all through the summer. And so this morning, the texts that are before us are, it's a top, more of a topical series. So we're not necessarily doing what we normally would do, which is to go through a a book of the Bible or a portion of a book of the Bible, but instead we're going to be jumping around uh, topically, and this morning you'll see that we are reading from the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and then uh, in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, you'll see that there are common themes between the two. I'll leave that that in suspension for a little while, and you can just, we'll talk about exactly what that means in just a minute. So let's read together. Uh, from these two texts, if you would. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If you want to jump back and forth. If if not, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, uh, good morning to you as well. It'll be on your screen as well. So let's read together. Paul writes this to the Corinthians and then to the Romans. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body Tish Harrison Warren, in her wonderful little book called *The Liturgy of the Ordinary*, if you've not heard of that or read it, if you notice, I'm going to try to give you resources here, uh, and so it's it's listed among the resources for this sermon. She just had a phrase in that book that I thought was really uh, wonderful and helpful. She said, "The crucible of our formation is the monotony of our daily routines." That's really what the entire book is about. The crucible of our formation is the monotony of our daily routines. A Duke University study years ago found that more than 40% of our actions actually come from the habits that are a part of our lives rather than the, the moment-to-moment decision-making that we do. In other words, almost half of the things that we actually engage in every day are automated responses that we've learned over time. They're, they're, they come from these repeated choices that over time we get automated and become regulated to the unconscious parts of the brain. So Peter Drucker famously said of business that culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's, it's something that I've really thought a lot about over the years as I you know, think about you know, pastoring this church and so forth. Uh, culture eats strategy for, for breakfast. John Ort, Ortberg, who is a pastor, he applied it to the spiritual life. He said, habits eat willpower for breakfast. That's one of the things you learn. And the problem, the reason I bring that up, is that when we think about our spiritual lives, we typically rely on willpower for change. We typically rely upon our ability to, in the moment, be able to make this decision that's the good one and not make the decision that's the bad one. But both the Bible and science reveal that's a terrible strategy. Let me take both of those, okay? Reading Colossians 2 this week. I was reminded of this. In Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul wrote about a particular approach to making spiritual progress. He described it as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, right? This kind of moralistic approach to to obeying the rules and doing good things and not bad things. That's all about rules and willpower. But here's what he said. Listen to it. He said, these things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's a strong statement. Now, the King James Version translates that verse like this. They have a show of wisdom in will worship. And that's really, really good. Because typically, we try for spiritual growth through will, through willpower, through getting our stuff together, right? Through... through um, New Year's resolutions and the way that we're going to become a better person and make the right decision this time around. But what the King James Version is is on is that when we re- relegate our spiritual lives to the will, it quickly becomes will worship, which does not work. And Paul says it may produce some outward show of success, but in the end, it doesn't work. And here's here's why. Science science has a lot to say about this as well. There's a, there's a very famous study done back in 1998, about 20 years ago, where. we <laughs> You'll, you'll find this uh, really interesting, I think. But uh, researchers took some college students and they made them fast for 24 hours. So they must have paid them because there's no way a college student is going to fast for 24 hours for anything. So so you know it's legit because they had to have paid the people that that, um, that did this. Uh, and then what they did is after the 24 hours, they brought all the college students that had, been not, had not eaten for a whole day, they brought them into a room, and in the room there were two choices there was a plate of warm chocolate chip cookies and there was a bowl of radishes. And here's where it gets really cruel. Um, One group, only one group, they split them into two groups and only one of the groups was permitted uh, to eat the chocolate chip cookies. The others had to eat the radishes. Now they could smell the chocolate chip cookies, they could do all that, but, but there was a group that wasn't allowed to eat the chocolate chip cookies. And then what they did was After just a few minutes, they led them into another room where they were given a geometry puzzle to work on. And the puzzle was actually impossible to solve. Uh, But the point was to see how long the students would struggle through the puzzle before they just pressed the button and gave up. Now, here's the interesting thing. Any guesses? Here's what they learned, is that the students who ate the chocolate chip cookies dramatically outperformed those who ate only the radishes, or who just passed on eating altogether. It wasn't even close, actually. On average, uh, the students who were given permission to eat the cookies spent 20 minutes on this impossible puzzle before they finally gave up, whereas uh, the radish-only group of students spent only eight minutes. Now, why? And here was the conclusion. The conclusion was that the radish-only students had depleted all of their willpower in trying not to eat the chocolate chip cookies. Right? Because after 24 hours of nothing and then you smell warm chocolate chip cookies and they're there and you have to fight, right? Because you're going to get paid if you do this and all of that. So so it became a really famous study that showed that willpower is actually a resource uh, that becomes sufficient, that becomes depleted. And that's why it's an insufficient power source is because how easily as we go through life, it gets depleted. And this thing that you're relying upon when you try to call upon it, it's not there for you. You don't, it's not, it's not enough to push you through to make the decisions that you need to make. Instead, and here's my contention, instead of the typical approach that that we take to the spiritual life, we need a system. Because remember... Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Habits eat willpower for breakfast. So one writer said, we need to outsource the work of willpower to the factory of habits. And that's why we're talking about this uh, this summer, because it's something I've been thinking about for a long time, and this is my job, and you just get to sit and listen to me talk about things I want to talk about sometimes, okay? So this is what we're doing this summer. But I also think, because it's a really important time in our life, Where, like we said last week, a lot of us, because of the disruption of the past 18 months, have gotten kicked out of habits. But it's also a great opportunity to engage in some new things. And so we're going to talk about this summer. Now, one major obstacle that we have to overcome as we talk about spiritual growth through the discipline of of crucial habits. One obstacle is to realize how badly we misunderstand the role of the body in the spiritual life that the body really doesn't matter. James K. Smith has written a great deal about this. He says, you know, knowledge, knowledge is crucible, but it's not enough. Knowledge, knowledge alone doesn't change you. But we still think of human beings, this is his, this is his uh, image. He says, we think of human beings as giant bobblehead dolls with humongous heads and itty-bitty unimportant bodies. And he makes the case that we need habits, we need liturgies, we need ingrained life patterns that involve our bodies. Because notice the emphasis in the text that we've chosen on the body. So look there. Our call to work, or our um, the law this morning was present your bodies as living sacrifices. Romans six twelve. Do not let sin reign in your body. He says there. And then of course in 1 Corinthians six twenty, glorify God in your body. And so we want to talk this morning about what kind of crucial habits do we need to put into place in our lives so that we can properly obey that verse there in. 1 Corinthians 6, to glorify God in our bodies. And we just want to ask, why is it so important we do that? And what does it really mean for us to do that? And then lastly, how? Where does the power come from? How can we become people with sufficient spiritual power, if will worship doesn't do it, to become people who properly glorify God with our bodies, okay? So let's walk through these two, these two texts together just along those headings and we'll be here uh, pretty we'll be in and out pretty quick this morning. So first, let's talk about why. If we're going if if the if the topic is what it means to glorify God in our bodies, let's talk about why. Why is that so important? And uh Romans twelve one is is really fascinating. And I know it's not part of our our scripture reading, but it is the verse that we read at the beginning of the of the service. Look there, I just so you can take your worship folder and turn back there. I want you to see it says just the language is 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 um Really amazing. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your what? Spiritual worship. So present your body as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. So very clearly that text says that what you do with your body and what you do with your soul are always intertwined. C. S. Lewis was attributed with saying, you can you can find this online. Uh, he, he was attributed with saying, you have a body, but you are a soul. I'm happy to report this morning that he said no such thing. And I'm glad to be able to report that, because had he, he would have been wrong, and that would have made me very sad. Because you know how much I love him. But there was an early heresy in the church that claimed that Jesus did not have a real body, that he was more like a phantom. And the church had to fight off that heresy... And it's had to fight off similar thinking throughout the centuries. The quote attributed to Lewis illustrates this: that Christians have been prone at times to emphasize the soul over the body. To say things like, you know, you have a body, but you are a soul. Which think about that, which indi- you know seems to indicate that yeah, you have a body, but your soul matters more. And it gets worked out in lots of different ways. That there, you know, so you begin to believe that there's a physical world and the spiritual world. But the physical world isn't as important as the invisible spiritual world. I mean, that's Plato, of course. We're still haunted by Plato in many ways. And, but in and even the way we think about heaven, where, where what's really come down to us is that we think about heaven, uh, you know, in heaven will be souls, disembodied souls that are floating around on the clouds, like the Bugs Bunny cartoons, which I'm dating myself by even referencing those. But this is how we've thought about things like this over the years. Even though the Bible talks about heaven using the language of the new heavens and the new earth, and it clearly says that we will have new bodies, spiritual bodies. Jesus had a resurrected body. And so, yes, true, you have a soul that will last forever, but you also have a body, and it will eventually wear out. But the good news is, is that on the day of resurrection, it will be renewed. You're an embodied soul. That's what Christianity teaches that you're an embodied soul, or Thomas Aquinas said it, that you are an in body. Take your pick, which way you want to characterize that. The point is that what you do with your body and what you do with your soul is always intertwined. And if there's a tendency in the world today, it's towards materialism. And materialism is this, is this mode of thinking that, that acts as if the physical world is all there is. Now, ironically, it doesn't keep people from searching for transcendence, but they look for it within the natural physical world, which explains a whole lot of, of some of the ways that we have made idols out of the environment and the natural world and so forth, where we're tempted to do that. But the prevalent worldview today is that we are soulless bodies, that we are just bodies. There's nothing else to us besides, you know, all of this organic matter and so forth, Now, if there's a tendency among religious people, though, it's towards hyperspiritualism To live as if this physical world doesn't matter at all. It's going to all be burned up one day. And to begin to imagine that we are disembodied souls. Now, both draw a hard line between the spiritual and the physical, between the soul and the body. And either emphasize one or the other. And both fail to account for the hard-fought Christian orthodoxy. And both create an artificial divide between the secular and the sacred aspects of our life. This is one of the ways this gets worked out. So there are parts of our life that have to do with kind of our religion. And that's coming to church and doing these things. And then there's the stuff that I do all the rest of the week, which is the secular stuff that I do. And it's interesting, when we're inhabiting secular spaces, we tend to think and act. Even those of us who say we believe, we tend to think and act like materialists. Because we've been so profoundly shaped by the culture that we live in. And so we tend to fall into neglecting neglecting the spiritual side of things, which is why the children's catechism question has always gotten me. We used to do it with our kids, and literally I got choked up every time we got to this part of the catechism when you ask the child, uh, do you have a soul as well as the body? And the child answers, answers, yes, I have a soul that will last forever. I mean, that is a powerful truth. And I would look my kids in the eye and say, yes, you do. You are going to be here a million, trillion, billion years from now. And it's a powerful counter-catechesis, counter-cultural truth that we have to hold on to. Because Jesus said that every individual soul is worth more than all of the treasures of the whole world. Every individual soul is worth more than all of the worlds in the universe. That's what he said. So valuable is the human soul. And we have to hold on to that, but we also have to remember that, see what happens though, is when we kind of transfer into sacred spaces. When we step out of the quote secular world, where we're tempted to think like materialists, we we move into our sacred spaces. And when we do that, we make the same mistake, but we tend to begin and think and act in hyper-spiritual ways. And then to neglect the physical side of things. So you have counselors who won't prescribe medications to people who want to deal with their mental health as if it's only a spiritual problem and neglect the physical aspects of that. You have all of these ways. I can tell you over and over, there's all kinds of ways. You have people who say, stop trying to take care of the poor. We just need to do spiritual things in the world and not meet physical needs of people. Do you see how this gets worked out? It's really weird. And if we're not careful, we can downplay the role our bodies play in our life with God. I mean, this is church. We're here this morning. We're inhabiting a a sacred space, and so we gotta be careful that we don't make this a place where we say, this is where we talk about the soul. I'll go to the gym and and talk to my trainer there about the body, and I'm trying to break down that, and so this morning, there's emphasis on the body, because what you do with your body matters. Now, I know what you're thinking. That guy's gonna talk to us about the body. Yes, I am, okay, okay, I'm a sinner too. We're all here trying to work this out together. We all got work to do. Okay. Let's just get past that. What you do with your body matters. Your spiritual act of worship is to present your body as a living sacrifice. Because we're embodied souls. That's the big picture. And if that's true, then it means that Christianity is an embodied faith. We believe in the incarnation, right? We, I mean, the fundamental belief of Christianity is that God put on a human body and came to earth. That Christ came in a body, and therefore, everything we do as his followers has an embodied element to it, which means we have to reject all forms of excarnation. This is a huge movement in our culture right now. Everything's becoming, if incarnation in the body, excarnation means kind of out of the body, like disembodied. You know, nobody goes to the bank anymore. You can do all that online. Nobody, you know, all of the ways that we can, we don't even have to go to the grocery store anymore. You can just have somebody drop that stuff off to your house and you only have to say hello to them when they come. If you, they'll just leave it at the doorstep. And it's like there, like little gremlins just brought it. And, you know, you step outside and don't have to talk to anybody. And we have to reject the way that our culture is pushing us towards excarnated ways of living because Christianity is an embodied faith. It's an incarnated faith. And we have to also learn better ways of involving our body in our day-to-day practices. And so that's why, that's my argument for why it's so important to heed the apostle here when he tells us that we're to glorify God in the body. But secondly, let's talk about, well, then what does it mean? What are some of the practical ways he would lead us to do this? Well, I think first, to recognize that the body is where we feel the effects of sin most acutely. That, has to, that is part of the teaching here. Uh, Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh, the body, is weak. And so the text in Romans, I'm thinking of chapter 6, verse 12 particularly, describes sin as reigning in our mortal bodies, taking the natural and good instincts of the body and turning them into lust. You see that there? That's the word epithumia. So what our body does, we feel the effects of sin the most in the way our body takes good instincts, good things, and turns them into out-of-control appetites and desires that drive our behavior in negative ways, often against our will. And in truth, our willpower is completely powerless against the way our body does this to us. We are no match for the epithumia of the body. We're slaves, this text says, unless we intentionally work to break the power of sin in our bodies which is what Paul calls us to here verse 12 he says do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions so very practically that means paying attention to what food you eat how they affect you exercising on a regular basis making sure you get enough sleep being thoughtful about the hormonal changes that you might be going through and having strategies for how to deal with what's happening in your body. Here's what I'm trying to say to you this morning. These are all critical strategies for fighting sin in the body. These are critical strategies for making spiritual progress. Because you can't change your desires for the most part. But you can change the habits that create and reinforce desires. So every habit, good or bad has basically a, a same structure and a lot of it has to do with your body. There's a cue and there's a routine and then there's a reward. And so the cue is the trigger and it initiates a routine of behavior that leads to an anticipated reward. And so to substitute a bad habit for a good habit, you have to be thoughtful enough to begin to recognize the cues and then intentionally substitute a different behavior than the one that has become routine, that has become automated. So say for example, you that you wanted to begin a new habit of running in the morning. You thought, you know, that would really improve my life, my physical life, which would improve my spiritual life, and so it's something important to me and I really want to do it. Well, there's all kinds of research that suggests that th- things as simple as putting your running shoes by your bed the night before and uh, and then, you know, and then creating some kind of reward that your that your brain begins to anticipate, like, like having a journal where you write it down. Remember we used to make fun of, like, like putting an x on all of the things that you did right but there's some there's a there's a an emotional feedback loop about taking a journal and marking the days that you do something and don't not marking the days that you do you create a reward or you let yourself have a little treat in the afternoon these things these ways of engaging with your body can actually rewire your brain and kick you into a new healthy habit now i'm doing a terrible job of explaining this and that's not really the point of the sermon you can read about it i've given you some i've given you some uh, resources there drew uh, Dyke's book and uh, James Clear's Atomic Habits is a book I've read that I didn't list here. My point here is just to say this, if you're going to take your sanctification seriously, you have to take your body seriously. And the reason we're talking about this is because that sounds so unspiritual, doesn't it? But that's the problem. Look at it again, in the language of Romans six. It says, do not present your members, that is the different parts of your body, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. This means that if you're sinning with your body in some way, it is because you're offering the different members as instruments for unrighteousness. It's not just happening, you're letting it happen. He's wanting us to take responsibility. you got to understand how you're letting it happen by willingly giving your eyes or your mind or your hands or your feet to sin. Don't blame anybody else. You've got to stop doing that. You've got to take yourself in hand, and you've got to make a conscious choice To instead willingly offer your members to God as instruments to righteousness, to say, "Here, Lord, here is my life. Here is my, you know, here is my mind. Here's the way I'm going to engage my heart. Here's my eyes. Here are my ears." There's an old hymn written by a lady called Frances Ridley Havergal that illustrates this perfectly. You probably know it. It says, "Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee." And then she just begins to do exactly what Romans six says: "Take my hands." And let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet. Let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my lips. And let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thy own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take myself. And I will be ever only all for thee. Do you see what she's doing? She's intentionally... Offering, presenting the different members of her body to God to say, this all belongs to you. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And we quickly dismiss that as hyperbole, right? We're like, yeah, yeah, that obviously doesn't really mean what it, But is it? Is it just symbolism or is it something more? See, the place of the body... Is crucial in the habits and the rhythms that we share together in worship. Worship is or should be full of kneeling and singing and raising our hands. It's full of eating and drinking and getting wet with the water of baptism. I read one writer this week who said, Worship, if it really is what it's supposed to be, should feel like a spiritual Pilates class when you're done. I mean, you sh- it should be a workout for your body. The more involved your body is, the more formative the things that you're participating in are. We come to church to present our voices to God. So what I want you to see, right? What do we come to do? We don't come to hear Patrick and Molly sing beautiful songs. We come to present our voices to God as we sing. And as we you know, pray, we come to, to present our ears, to listen eagerly for God's voice. As our pastors pray and as they teach us from his word, we come to present our hands lifted in worship to him or outstretched to receive the benediction. We come to present our countenance, the gleam in our eye and the smile on our face, which are offerings to the Lord that display his greatness. See, bodily gestures... Posture the soul appropriately because the two are connected. And so worship involves the body. But there's also an important place the body plays in the personal crucial habits that we engage in. Things like prayer. Stanley Hauerwas, who uh, was a professor at Duke University for a long time, he he just said this. He said, if you want to learn to pray, you have to first learn to kneel. He said, if one wants to learn to pray, one had better know how to bend the body. Learning the gesture and posture of prayer is inseparable from, inseparable from learning to pray. Indeed, the gestures are prayers. Now, that's very good. And in the book that I mentioned earlier, Tish Harrison Warren, she described a, a time early in her ministry where she she couldn't pray. She had gone through something really hard, and the words just would not come. Uh, but what she described is the way that she learned to pray without words. And here are her words. I found them really moving. She said, in the midst of this prayer, just dark night of the soul. Though words failed me, prayer without words. Prayer in and through my body became a lifeline. Listen to her. She says, I could not find words, but I could kneel. I could submit to God through my knees, and I'd lift my hands to hold up an ache. My body led me in prayer and led me, all of me, eventually, even my words into prayer. I find that really moving. The body is really important. So we glorify him by offering the parts of our body to him in worship and, and personal disciplines. But third, let's finish with just saying, well, then if, if all of this is so, then where does the power for this come from? If it's not willpower, as we've already said, then what other power is there? And it's you see, you see it here. I'm particularly thinking of Romans 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 14 here, where we're first told uh, that sin is more than just doing bad things. It's a condition. Slavery, it's slavery to spiritual powers that work through the body, creating desires that become out of control that we have a hard time fighting off. That slavery works itself out through our members, through the ingrained habits of the body. And so you break the power of sin by beginning to act with your body, contrary to how you might feel, and and instead in line with the truth. This is chapter 6, verse 11. We didn't print this Uh, This verse, but let me just read it to you. Just before what he says here, let not sin reign in verse 12, he says this, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The outworking of that being, let not sin reign therefore in your mortal body and so forth. And so this is what we're being led to. If your faith is in Jesus, what it says here in verse 14 is you are under grace. So just as sin reigned in death, grace now reigns through righteousness, Romans 5.21 says, Here's what that means. The only thing stronger than sin is grace. The only thing stronger than sin is grace. Not law. It says here, sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under sin. If you're under law, you're still under sin. Law can't break the power of sin. Law is just another word for willpower, by the way. Law is about your effort, about your doing, but grace is something different. Grace refers to what God has done for you and what he continues to do in you. Grace is a power that comes from the outside that can come inside and change you. It says in Titus chapter 2 that grace appeared. Isn't that an interesting phrase? He says grace appeared, and it's taught us to say no to, to all of these passions that are, that are so driving us. Grace appeared, what's that refer to? Well, it refers to the coming of Jesus Christ, God himself in a human body. He spent his days eating and drinking. He got tired and had to take a nap. He experienced all the trouble of having a human body. But with his body, he presented himself to God as a sacrifice, offering his members to God only as instruments for righteousness. And if you believe, if you believe that he's come, and if you believe in the work that he's done for you, then what the Bible says is that then you are united to him by faith. Here's what that means, that he died... On the cross, he died, and when he died, you died with him. He died for your sins, but you died to your sins. And he was raised. And when he was raised, you were raised with him too, which is why Paul says in verse 11, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But the key then is to take this truth and to be mindful of it in everything you do, to think and to act In your body, in line with grace. And you do that by first having your head straightened with the truth. Having your head straightened with the truth. You have to consider yourself. That that word means, it's, it's the word logistics. You have to think out the implications of what's being said here. You consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You may feel very alive to sin and dead to God. But you have to consider the truth. That's, that's not in keeping with necessarily what you feel. There's an old story about a horse who spent his days walking in a circle tied to a post to grind wheat into flour. Day after day, for hours and hours, the horse uh, walked in circles. That's all he did. Uh, so much so, he got so ingrained in the habit that on his day off, the owners would let the horse out into the pasture to roam free. No rope, no bridle. But the first thing the old horse would do was find a tree and spend the entire day just walking around the tree. He didn't know he was free. He was so ingrained in the way of thinking that even when the rope wasn't there, even when the bridle wasn't holding him in place, he did the only thing he knew to do. See, you, you, what what the scripture says is if you believe in Jesus, you are free. You're under grace, but you have to act like it. By having your head straightened by the truth, but then also having your heart softened by his love. The most precious part in all that we read this morning to me is in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, where it says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Do you see that? Isn't that great? That means that the power to not live for yourself, but to offer yourself to God, is to know how costly that you are to love and then to see Jesus dying on the cross to pay the price for you. You're loved. You're free. It's all grace. And here's the thing grace isn't opposed, excuse me, grace is opposed to merit, but it is not opposed to effort. I quoted D.A. Carson last week. He described grace driven effort, and that's where the habits come in. And we're doing big picture stuff before we get to kind of specific things this summer, but that's where the habits come in. They're habits of grace. You see the sermon, you see the the slide behind me. Uh, Is it behind me? Yes. Uh, And that's the title for this series. They are habits that keep your head straightened and your heart softened. Because that is the Holy Spirit's job. But do you see here, 1 Corinthians 6, if you're a Christian, your body is now become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's living in you. The point is that you have to access the power that he brings into your life from the inside instead of just trying to do things through your own will and your own strength. And that's where the habits come in. Richard Foster, who's written a great book called Celebration of Disciplines, he says this. He says, the need to change within us is God's work, not ours. The demand is for an inside job, and only God can work from the inside. And then he quotes Galatians 6, uh, 6 and 7, which says, if you sow to the spirit, you'll reap from the spirit. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap from the flesh. And that's kind of what we've been talking about. But he says this, he uses this analogy that he carries out that analogy of, of the agricultural analogy of sowing. He says, a farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions for the growing of the grain. He cultivates the ground. He plants the seed. He waters the plants. And then the natural forces of the earth take over, and up comes the grain. And this is the way with spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the Spirit, they are God's way of getting us into the ground. They put us where He can work within us and transform us. But by themselves, they can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. And that is, it sounds so simple. But here's, if you, here's what I want you to take away from this morning. The key to, the key to making progress in the spiritual life is this. It's this one thing. To get your body to the place where God can do something with you. That's all you can control. But you can't control that. And so Isaac Watts... Uh, I think echoes, or he he articulates the prayer that that we would have as we think about these things. This morning in an old hymn he wrote, he said this, and I'll I'll leave you with this as we close in prayer in just a minute. He says, thy power and glory, O Lord, work within and break the chains of reigning sin. Do our imperious lusts subdue and guide our roving feet anew. If you believe in Jesus and you belong to him, the Holy Spirit is in you. Your body is a temple of the Spirit. And so, do everything you can to get your body in a place where he can work on you, where you can have your head continually straightened with truth and have your heart continually softened with love because that's the key to seeing spiritual progress. Would you pray with me as we come to the close this morning? So, Father, what does repentance look like? I keep thinking that, Father. I mean, you you lead us in this moment to consideration of, of repentance and faith, so what would it look like for us to... Repent, And I suppose it would be for us to just acknowledge the ways that we can become lazy uh, with the way that we engage our body and the spiritual life that we have, where we, where we have just fallen into this trap of, of separating those things out. Instead of, instead of being holistic and thoughtful about the ways that our body continues to dominate and rule through ingrained habits that we've allowed to develop. And so, Father, there, there are powerful Thanks. things, powerful things that we're up against. And so would you grant us the grace of repentance this morning as we would consider what it would mean for us to, to, to take our bodies. And instead of offering our members as instruments to sin, instead turn around and offer them to you as instruments for righteousness. But as we do so, the power to to turn away from sin like that comes from from faith, from turning to you and knowing uh, that we do not do that so that we get all that work done and you would look approvingly upon us. We do that because we know that before we even begin to do anything or make any change that you've set your love upon us, that we are here not because we're the people who figured this out. We are here because uh, we are yours. And it's that truth, it's the truth of knowing that, that that even in our sin you've loved us, that you have bought us, that we are expensive and you've paid the price and you've done it joyfully because uh, you love us. It's that truth that can drive us towards uh, new behaviors that would be transforming in our lives. So would you ground us in that truth? Would you remind us of that truth? Would you convince us of that truth this morning? And may there be new spiritual energy for us to begin to engage to obey this command, to glorify you in our bodies so that we would be people of your praise and your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That ending caught me by surprise. Sorry. I was worshiping, and then all of a sudden I was supposed to be up here. There's a simple truth in that song. Uh, It's a perfect perfect way to end. Uh, Jesus paid it all, and if he paid it all, then it's true, then all to him I owe. But that doesn't become a slavish thing because he paid it all and the gift at the end of paying it all was the Holy Spirit, which is the power of God in you to make it possible for you to live a life where you give it all back to him. And that's what these words of benediction mean. He sends us now to live the kind of lives that we've talked about this morning, to glorify God in our bodies, but not to be on our own, to find the strength within ourselves to do that. He sends us with the promise that his presence and his power, his spirit will go with us. Uh, to be working these things out in our life, So receive these words of benediction then as you've responded in faith. uh, Hear yet again the voice of the Father over you as I declare these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Good to see you this morning.